So I could see uh, after having talked to Aaron, why you're so enthusiastic about his book and um, fascinating interview. His book, The Table of Contents, you've read it and love it. I have not read it. I've skimmed it. But just the table of contents make me excited about reading it. And um, I think the people will really enjoy this interview. He's a fascinating young man and he's uh, very humble as well. What did you think? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I thought it was one of the best treatments of the subject that uh, I have read and I highly recommend it. I think it would be great for high school students and youth pastors, youth leaders, parents um, who are concerned about the topic or interested in knowing more. So I, it was really good. Um, and I enjoyed just getting to know him uh, you know, I like how personalities come through in, in writing and in the, in the written word, but it's so exciting to meet a person and hear their personal journey and their story and um, have a flavor of how that came out into their book. So I, was, I enjoyed the interview for sure. Joining us today is Aaron Yilmaz, a PhD candidate who is currently an adjunct professor teaching evolutionary biology at the university level. His research focuses on urban evolution and he has published several evolutionary biology related journals. His book, Deliver Us from Evolution, has sold several thousand copies worldwide and explores the evolution debate from a Christian perspective. Thank you for joining us today. Aaron Yilmaz. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your background. Who are you? Um, for our, our listeners who've never heard of you and your really fantastic book that I can't recommend highly enough, um, what's your background, spiritual, academic? Um, just tell us more. Yeah, I guess spiritually, uh, you know, I was kind of raised in a nominal Christian home. Um, you know, went to church a couple of times, celebrated Easter, Christmas. Uh, it wasn't until I was about 15, uh, I started, I was in like an existential funk trying to figure out, is there any meaning to my life, you know? So I picked up a little book by Thomas Nagel called, What Does It All Mean? He was a professor of philosophy at NYU. And, you know, I was naive enough to think at 15 that like a 90 page book is going to tell me the meaning of life. So I read it. And at the end, he says, you know, there is no meaning. You're going to die and in a hundred years going to be grown over with grass and no one's going to ever know you existed. There's no point to anything. And that uh, sent like a visceral, like literal shock through my body. And it kind of started me on this search for, you know, I got to figure out, is this true? Is there no God? Is there an afterlife? So long story short, I started, you know, investigating different religions. Um, I started attending a you know local church around the same time. Um, and by the time I was 16, I became convinced that this was the most plausible worldview, the, the biblical Christian worldview. And so, you know, I got, just became a Christian. Um, you know, and that's, you know, kind of been ever since it's, you know, kind of the story, uh, academically, it's a little bit different. I, uh, you know, I didn't really take school seriously. I took gym seven times. I took home ec like twice keyboarding. I took auto shop like half the year, my junior and senior year. I just, I just screwed off a lot and like, didn't really care. Um, had a bunch of different jobs. I drove a forklift. I, uh, worked as a cable guy. Wildland firefighter, uh, worked in a high-rise insurance stuff. And uh, I quit my job 
you know, making decent money at the time um, to go clean toilets at a nature center for about eight grand a year. Um, and my wife, who was my fiance at the time, was supportive, but, you know, <laughs> I was worried because she wanted to get married. Uh, but I got a job at the nature center. Uh, eventually, you know, after cleaning toilets, I had a naturalist position open up. And uh, my boss said, you know, usually you have to have a bachelor's degree, but, you know, we'll let you become a naturalist on the condition you go back to school. So I, you know, started going to school for a bachelor's in biology, graduated, wanted to do wildlife stuff, uh, applied to like 200 jobs all over the country, flew out using student loan money, didn't get any jobs. I said, you need more experience, more education, more experience. So I ended up getting my master's degree in biology. Um, so I went back to the same job. Oh, you were underqualified last time. Now you're overqualified. <laughs> so, so long story short, I was uh, doing some wildlife stuff in Florida and my wife was taking classes for her nursing degree. And the professor uh, found out I had a biology degree. He said, hey, he said, your husband should apply here. He can be an adjunct. And I never thought about it, but I applied and I started teaching some biology classes. And I just absolutely fell in love with that, uh, especially the aspect of, you know, teaching students. So uh, kind of them I had found out about some interesting going on from one of my mentors, uh, kind of this urban evolution aspect. Uh, so I inquired to him, we started talking, and he offered me a, a paid PhD position in his lab. Um, yeah, and so now I'm about, I'm a PhD candidate about halfway through my PhD. I've uh, published a few good papers, you know, first author. Um, I'm teaching adjunct at the University of Akron right now, uh, evolution of biology class. Um, yeah, and just, you know, looking forward to hopefully teaching evolution of biology and trying to, you know, kind of bridge that gap. So I just, I'm curious about your, about the urban um, evolution. Is this stuff like squirrels and crows making their home in cities and adapting that, that type of thing? Tell me more. Yeah, there, there's been some neat uh, research on those kinds of things. Like, you know, bird feeders in urban areas, like, you know, some populations of birds are actually evolving, you know, to more efficiently feed off bird feeders that people are putting out. Uh, my main thing is, you know, mostly arthropods. So uh, I did a paper on ants. I looked at body size um, across three cities, urban rural gradients. Uh, but mostly my stock and trade is isopods. So like pill bugs or roly polies you find under like stones and logs. Uh, so I study wood lice. So essentially I go out, I, you know, capture a bunch. I put them in a, uh, a glorified refrigerator for, you know, several months and I rear up thousands of them and I, do torturous experiments. I heat them up till they die. I freeze them till they die. Expose them to pollution till they die. And basically what I'm looking at is, you know, they're in an urban environment. They were here first. We built a city around them. We jacked up the temperature. You know, we added a lot of pollution. It's a lot drier here. Uh, so how do they adapt to all these different challenges? And so there's a lot of different selective challenges. How do they adapt to them? Do they uh, increase their ability to withstand heat to the detriment of ability to withstand desiccation to these traits of open concert. Uh, so it's pretty much what I study at this point. Wow. Can you tell us some of your preliminary conclusions? Yeah. So uh, I have a paper. It's it's already posted online, but I think it's actually going to come out in the first journal of the next year. Uh, so just a paper with my advisors and evolutionary applications, uh, which I present findings that show evidence that urban populations of isopods in Cleveland have actually evolved to withstand more heat because, you know, in urban Cleveland here, it's about three degrees C warmer than the adjacent rural areas. And so I showed, you know, 
pretty good evidence that they've actually evolved to withstand more heat in the city. So this is evolution on, you know, human beings, uh, you know, lifetime, like on our contemporary timescale, we actually see populations evolving in response to, you know, the pressures of urban living, which I think is just super cool. All right. So you, you have this book that you wrote, um, deliver us from evolution or, or perhaps evolution. Um, <laughs> what, what, what led to writing this? Yeah, I wish there was, uh, I wish I had a better answer other than, you know, I was, I was angry. I, you know, I had, uh, you know, so many people that, you know, pastors, apologists, you know, uh, Christian friends, they kept telling me how, you know, evolution's odd and evolution's all fabricated. And, you know, this is something I had studied pretty in depth. Uh, this is something I've devoted a lot of time and energy to. Um, and so, you know, I got upset that there was so many, there's so much misinformation about evolution and that so many people have bought into this idea that there's this, you know, dichotomy. It's you choose either evolution and atheism, or you can choose, uh, you know, Christianity and some form of creationism or intelligent design. And so I wanted to set the record straight. I hadn't seen a book out there that had kind of had really hard evidence from evolution or biology and also kind of the spiritual philosophical side. So I got pretty mad about it and I spent two and a half years just pounding it out. You did a great job too. And, and I actually am really happy to see a lot more books and resources on this subject are available now than in the past. Um, so sure. why don't you we kind of dig into your book? John, did you have a question first? Yeah. Can we start with the title? <laughs> yeah. What what made you choose that title? Were you being provocative or tell us, tell us a little bit more about that? It'd be a little provocative because, you know, I think evolution is seen uh, by a lot of Christians and, you know, myself for a long time is something that, to be feared or something to be uh, you know, derided or put down. And so, you know, I kind of pose the question, you know, deliver us from evolution. Should we be delivered from it? Is it a hoax? Is it dangerous to faith? Uh, you know, or is there good evidence that, you know, this is actually true? So I didn't want to put people off too much with a title that gave it away. I wanted to try to draw people in, uh, and hopefully by exploring the book, you know, wherever they're at, they would hopefully get something from it and hopefully it would spur some thinking. Sometimes people won't go in and start reading a book if they already know it's some a view different than their own, um, which is kind of too bad. I think it's mm. good to be aware of positions outside your own. Um, but I think it, the book is kind of title is kind of clever, uh, and in it you talk uh, both about evolution and evidence about the age of the Earth. Why don't we start with the age of the Earth question? Tell us some of the yeah. best evidences you have found for. Um, why scientists, by and large, can conclude that Earth is millions, billions of years old. You know, a lot of these polls are showing that over 99% of working PhD scientists agree that the Earth is, you know, 4.54 billion years old. But if you ask the general public, uh, some polls have shown upwards of 50%. If you ask them, uh, do you believe humans and the entire universe created within the last 10,000 years? Some polls show up words of 50% of the public will agree with that statement. So it's possible that half the people you know believe in a young Earth. Uh, and I just, it's kind of inconceivable when, 
you know, I try to objectively assess the evidence. Uh, I'm just, you know, looking at the stars in your backyard at night. Uh, I mean, when you look at the stars with the naked eye, I mean, you can see stars 2.6 million light years away. Uh, so obviously, if the Earth has only been here for 6,000 years or 10,000 even, it's hard to imagine how we've had light rays traveling for 2.6 million years. Um, with the telescope, you can see, you know, you can see lights, uh, stars rather, 2 billion years away. And then a telling of young Earth creationism that, you know, they have to pretty much have an entirely radically different view of the universe just to explain how you can see stars at night. They have to invoke, you know, something like time dilation or, you know, the speed of light was, you know, way faster, uh, which that wouldn't work because either, you know, so much energy is, you know, put off that the Earth is vaporized or, you know, we don't have any gravity. You can't really change the EMC E equals MC squared equation much with things going really wrong. You know, I guess what you're left with is a, well, maybe the appearance of age, right? So 6,000 years ago, God created the Earth to look 4.5 billion years old with rays already in place from stars that never existed. Uh, that seems a little duplicitous, and that seems like kind of a deceptive God. Uh, but, it, you know, it gets even more complicated when you think about something like the 1987A supernova. So in 1987, scientists, you know, look through their telescopes and they see uh, a supernova 170,000 light years away, which means that 170,000 years ago, the star blew up and it's taken 170,000 years for this light ray to reach the scientist telescope. Well, if the universe was created six or 10,000 years ago, that means that six or 10,000 years ago, God created a light ray already in place that he knew would show a supernova that in reality never even existed. He created a light ray that would show a fake supernova that never even existed. So I just have a hard time believing that God is that duplicitous or is that intense on misleading you know, scientists. Um, yeah, I think some other really good evidences for the age of the earth, ice cores. I mean, ice cores, you know, uh, you know, static areas of glaciers, you get, uh, you know, kind of a freeze, I'm sorry, not a freeze thaw, but, through, you know, radiation and, you know, different temperature conditions, you get like a light and dark band every year. Uh, and so we have great evidence from ice cores that the Earth is at least 500,000, 800,000 years old. Uh, the Vostok ice space core is like 450,000 of these annual layers. Uh, what is it? The, the Dome C. The Dome C ice core has 800,000 of these layers. Uh, and so it's pretty hard to explain on a you know, young Earth model. Of course, what they would say is, you know, these rates of phenomena are accelerated in the past and they slam that once you start looking at them. And you think, well, maybe, you know, but then you look at uh, stalactites, right? Stalactites grow about half an inch. Um, I'm sorry, not half an inch. Um, sorry, I have my notes up here somewhere. Uh, about 0.1 millimeter per year. So it's like growing about 1.1 million 0.1 millimeters per year. Some of them are 27 foot long. So, I mean, do the math. We know that these stalactites have been hanging around intended <laughs> for 57,000 years at least. Uh, you think about moon dust, you know, we know the rate of uh, dust deposition on the moon, you know, and there's about two inches of dust on the moon. So we know that about two nanograms per centimeter accumulated on the moon. You know, you multiply that by 4.5 billion years, you get exactly two inches. Uh, you know, VAR. So this is like the Green River Formation out west. Uh, 
Mars are kind of the same as like the ice cores. Every year, due to you know differences in you know, sediment and differences in water levels, you get these two layers, kind of a light and dark band. And so what you get is you get these annual layers. Well, how many annual layers do we see? Depending on you know the VAR formation, we see anywhere from 4.5 to 20 million. Uh, you know, and again, creationists want to say, well, you know, those aren't annual layers. Uh, those were, you know, these hyper-accelerated phenomena way back before we started looking at them. And so you'd have to imagine, you know, about 900 storms a year to create what appears to be just an annual layer. You know, and even more so, within these annual layers, you see bird nests, you see eggs, you see feces, you see nestlings. So it's hard to imagine that birds did all that in, you know, about an eight-hour one day. Uh, you know, not only that, but, you know, these VARVs, not only can we count the annual layers, uh, they also line up with, you know, radiometric uh, dating on them. So they've been dated radiometrically. It shows that, yes, these are actual annual layers. Um, I, mean, I could just go on and on. I don't know how much you want me to. You know, <laughs> but there's... Aaron, I, I want to jump in it for a second here and ask you, yeah. because we kind of... Um... We kind of moved past it quickly. When you were 16 and you said that you, you accepted that the Christian argument was valid and probably the most probable, were you aware of young earth creation? Yeah. Were you aware that there was this swath of Christians who, who took the Bible or at least Genesis to be literal history and science were you aware of that or what path did you travel until you became aware that and and grew tired of christians being skeptical about science and evolution yeah yeah when i became a christian when i was 16 you know i hadn't really thought about it much uh i just kind of assumed the earth was old you know it's really undecided about you know evolution uh, and, you know, when I became a new Christian, I started reading everything I could, a lot of apologetics, uh, you know, and there are many influential apologetics books today. I won't name any names. These <clears throat> Strobel, Norman Geisler. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these books, as great as they were and helping me, you know, come I to just, faith, they also put up a lot of... Thank you for that. Thank you for that. But uh, ah. <laughs> back to our normal programming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, as, as influential and as helpful as they were and, you know, matters of, you know, faith. They also put up a serious stumbling block because, you know, when I was reading these books as a young Christian, they're essentially saying, well, you know, if evolution is true, there's there's no meaningful role for God. There's no room for God if evolution is true. And they, to me, uh, pitch this, uh, you know, kind of uh, dichotomy of, well, you know, you're Christian now. You can either choose, you know, Jesus and some form of creationism or intelligent design, or you can choose to accept evolution and you can be an atheist. And so as a new Christian, I thought, well, you know, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian now. Well, I guess I have to accept some stripe of creationism or intelligent design. Uh, and so I did for a long time, and uh, I was hostile to evolutionary biology. I looked up everything I could and read all these, you know, books by mostly older creationists and intelligent design proponents. And I would actually argue against people who uh, accepted evolutionary biology. A lot of times I won. I knew more than they did about the counter arguments and the actual science. Uh, but I think cha things changed when it was like my junior or senior year in my undergrad of my degree. Uh, I took an evolutionary biology class at the university level. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to infiltrate. I'm going to learn everything there is to know. I'm going to expose them. Uh, I'm going to bring the whole thing down by infiltrating it, you know, learning all the secrets. I can really take it down. 
And I found myself about a third halfway through the class thinking, wow, this is something, you know, my books never told me about. My uh, apologetics books, you know, really misconstrued this. So they, uh, you know, kind of suppressed this evidence. And so really, for the first time, I wasn't trusting what apologists and, you know, radio show hosts were telling me. I was actually looking at the raw data myself. And, you know, someone who's being trained in science, I started looking at the data and I thought, well, this has a lot of explanatory power and scope. And I'm not really sure how to fit this in with my Christian worldview yet. But I know that, you know, God gave me a brain and I'm using it. And this really seems to make a lot of sense and explain a lot of the data. <laughs> Let's peel back on that a little bit. Um, when we've heard deconversion testimonies of famous people or even non-famous people, but I'm hmm. thinking of Rhett and Link um, from Good Mythical Morning. When they talk about their uh, deconstruction, Rhett said that he didn't blame his youth pastor or his church um, because they didn't know any better, basically. But he did blame the people who wrote the books. And <clears throat> following up on what you just said about famous apologists, I, Christine and I have talked about how it just seems like the majority of apologists today uh, have an anti-evolutionary stance, and it's really unnecessary. Yeah. It's completely not only wrong-headed, but it's unnecessary. It, 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 and yet, um, it seems to be a, a string on each of their guitars. So, how big of it uh, was it? How big of a move was it for you to be able to say, "Wow, I don't. I'm not just going to trust these guys anymore. I'm going to think on my own." Number one, the first part of the question. Second part of the question is, did that uh, make you think that maybe you were wrong as a 16-year-old and maybe you need to rethink your faith? Because if these are the giants of the faith and they're saying it's either or, um, did you have any second second thoughts on that? Or did you automatically just say, wow, you know, they're wrong. I have to think about this myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you pretty much summed it up perfectly. Yeah, I read these books and, you know, these are books that had partially convinced me that, you know, the gospel is reliable and, you know, that the the Christian worldview is, you know, grounded in history and philosophically, logically sound. Uh, you know, and part and parcel of that was also the anti-evolution rhetoric. Uh, and so, you know, fast forward to my college years, when I find out that the evolution piece, they actually got it wrong. I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, you know, they got it so wrong with evolution. They couldn't have gotten it more wrong. But were they wrong about Jesus too? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that, you know, that fueled a lot of my anger in writing the book because uh, I felt like they really did set me up for, you know, a big crisis of faith. Uh, they had put the evolution kind of as a, as a package deal with being a Christian. When I found out they were wrong about evolution, I thought, well, what else are they wrong about? Are they wrong about Jesus too? Uh, and so, yeah, I kind of had to go back and, well, I'm not going to trust anybody anymore. I'm doing my own research on everything. Uh, and so that was a real eye-opener for me. It was a it was a tough time, and, and I was newly married at this point. I spent a lot of long nights with my wife at the dinner table talking about this and how do I possibly reconcile my biblical worldview with, you know, this uh, idea of, you know, evolution and common descent. Um, and it was not easy. And, you know, at some part, I do blame myself for not being more diligent and being a little naive and just trusting you know, that some popular level lawyer is going to tell me the truth about evolution or biology. Uh, but, you know, I do put some of the blame on them, too. I mean, they have a big responsibility. Uh, you know, some of the people I mentioned, they have a huge voice or did have a huge voice. And, you know, when they're a little bit reckless and talking about areas that are not their expertise or, 
you know, areas they have not studied in depth. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a recipe for disaster in my book. When you're coming out of that moment uh, where you're feeling that frustration, um, did you did you um, find yourself exposed to any resources that helped you or was this your own study? Did you bump into somebody and said, hey, check out BioLogos or was that not available to you at the time? Um, tell us about that transition from from the initial anger to being at peace and then maybe being inspired to write the book. Yeah. So at the time, I really not aware that you know, there was even this pretty large middle ground, uh, you know, according to the polls. I mean, people who attend religious services weekly, you know, upwards of, you know, 40 percent say they accept, you know, evolution. I had no idea this middle ground existed. I was just pitched and, you know, I cut my teeth on this literature that says, you know, it's either evolution and atheism or it's Christianity and some form of creationism. So, you know, I was pretty distraught and, you know, one night I'm just flipping through the TV, just kind of trying to get my mind off the whole thing. And I actually see Dinesh D'Souza and John Polky in an atheist Christianity debate. And, you know, I'm watching it. I think it's interesting. And, you know, the atheists actually bring up, uh, you know, the charge of, well, you know, Christians deny science, so on and so forth. And Dinesh D'Souza actually laid out what I had something I'd never heard that evolution and, uh, you know, billion coexist. And I was elated. I had never heard of such a thing. And I didn't even know the possibility existed. But here was this guy who was obviously a very intelligent Christian who was articulating this position that you can accept science, um, you know, go where the evidence leads you. You can feel you can follow God's revealed truth and His revealed word. So I bought his book. Uh, What's so great about Christianity? Uh, that turned me on to some other uh, key figures in this field, like Francis Collins, um, you know, Kenneth Miller, John Walton. Uh, and so, yeah, I ended up finding this whole new community of people who, you know, are rigorous scientists who respect, you know, God revealing Himself in nature, you know, and also respect God's words and consider them, you know, devout Christians. Yeah, I've actually read a few of Dinesh D'Souza's books as well. And early in my exploration, struggling through this topic as well. And um, I liked a lot of what he had to say. Um, it was kind of thought, thoughtful, different thoughts than I had been exposed to before. Um, yeah. So my background is that I attended a Christian high school that was very fundamentalist, Baptist, young earth creation um, and it wasn't from my family of origin, but just from the school environment that I kind of picked up this young earth creation perspective, uh, not really dogmatically, but I just didn't know anything different. I just assumed that's how things were. And then I went into aerospace engineering and, um, you know, kind of eventually learned that what I had been taught there didn't really match up to what I was seeing in the, the real world around me. Um, and it, with not having a very strong biology background, it took me a while to kind of plow through biology and evolution. And, and I just didn't know what to think for a long time. Um, for me, one of the, one of the aspects of evolution that was very compelling was biogeography and the way different animals evolved in different environments. And you could kind of trace these back over geography. Um, and, and that yeah. to me was very telling 
you know, if it, if there was like this intelligent design, miraculous creation sporadically around the world, I, that wouldn't be an unexpected pattern. So yeah. tell us some of the factors for you that were really compelling to promote evolution that do not fit well with an intelligent designer or um, spontaneous creation type of a viewpoint. Yeah, well, I think you touched upon one of the biggest ones. I mean, uh, Jerry Coyne, who's a famous you know biologist, you know he says essentially that you know biogeography is such powerful evidence for evolution that he said he hasn't seen any creationist lecture, any creationist book, or any creationist literature that's even discussed biogeography. They just pretend it doesn't exist uh, because it's so you know such persuasive evidence. And yeah, you know you think uh, you know why did big polar bears and the Arctic, and there's an identical habitat in Antarctica where they don't live. Why are penguins in the Antarctic and not the Arctic, even though it's an identical environment? Uh, you know, why do you have cacti in the Americas, uh, but somehow in the identical environment in the Middle East, right in Noah's backyard, they never got established? Uh, you know, why does Madagascar have 100 species of lemur and there's no other species of lemur anywhere else on Earth? Why does Australia have all the marsupials except for, you know, a few opossums in the Americas? Uh you know, why do islands not really have any natives, uh, salamanders, amphibians, fishes, freshwater fishes, rather? And so, yeah, a lot of these facts don't seem to fit with, you know, this creation model of either independent centers of creation or dispersal from, you know, Mount Ararat or wherever the Arctic landed. Much better, uh, you know, evolutionary biology model where, um, you know, you have dispersal and vicariance and these things that have such explanatory scope and power to explain why we have this distribution of animals the way we do. Um, I mean, even Darwin noticed this. I mean, Darwin was, you know, in the Galapagos, he found these giant tortoises up to six foot long, size of Volkswagen, you know, almost the size of Volkswagen beetle. And, you know, he saw the Chaco tortoise on the American, South American mainland. Uh, and obviously he hypothesized that, you know, they dispersed over there, rafted on there in some vegetation they colonize these islands. And even on the islands, these tortoises are all huge, but they have different shaped shells depending on the selective pressures on each island. Uh, you know, he found fossils of glyptodonts, which are, you know, these giant shelled creatures that are, you know, prehistoric. And he found, you know, modern armadillos, you know, in the same spot, he found the fossils of the ancient glyptodonts. So they look very similar, uh, but they're different in many ways. Um, and so, yeah, biogeography, I think, is something that even impressed Darwin, and he wrote a whole chapter on it. Uh, so I think that is persuasive evidence uh, for evolution. I would say if I was pressed to pick maybe one or two pieces of evidence, I think one to me that stands out is a uh, human chromosome two. So, you know, uh, if we do share common ancestry with the great apes, so, you know, science tells us that our closest relatives are the chimpanzees, you know, followed by the gorillas and the orangutans. Uh, well, there's a problem, or at least on the surface, there seems to be a problem. You know, the great apes all have 24 chromosome pairs. Humans have 23 chromosome pairs. And I would say that presents a problem because it seems very unlikely that we would have lost an entire chromosome during our evolution and we would have still survived as a species. And it seems equally improbable that orangs, chimps, and gorillas would have independently evolved an extra chromosome. Uh, that would seem to be the end of them as well. Uh, but then, you know, in 2005, we get a peek inside the human genome and we have, you know, all the great ape genomes sequenced. And we look at our chromosome too. And what do we find? Well, on a normal chromosome, 
you have telomeres on the end. So the ends of the chromosome have these very repetitive, specific sequences of DNA that are like caps on the chromosome. You only find them on the ends. We also have this region of DNA in the middle of the chromosome called a centromere. Uh, and so that's you know important for cell division events. Put them in the center. So, you know, here's a testable hypothesis, right? Uh, you know, if this chromosome fused, we had 24, the chromosome fused, now we have 23. We should be able to look at that chromosome and see telomeres in the middle and centromeres, not quite in the middle, but maybe a third and two thirds of the way down. Well, that's exactly what we see. We see a chromosome, an extra long chromosome, right? Twice the length of chimpanzee chromosome 2A and 2B. And in the middle of the chromosome, we see telomeres. We see end caps in the middle of the chromosome. And then instead of having one centromere in the middle, we have one centromere about a third of the way down and another centromere about two thirds of the way down. And so I, I'm hard pressed to find any explanation rather than common ascent for why we would possibly have a fused chimpanzee genome or chimpanzee chromosome essentially in our genome. Uh, so that to me is really powerful. Aaron, if, if, the information, if the evidence is so strong, and the, the, the example mm-hmm. you just gave is, is, is very compelling, I, I think that's, too, what changed Dennis Venema's mind, what made him mm. leave intelligent design for evolutionary creation was, was the, the chimpanzee and the human genome. But if the evidence is so strong, um, why, do, why do Christians hate evolution, as you write in your book, a chapter? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think part of that is the fault of a very vocal minority of scientists. And I think part of it is also the fault of a very vocal minority of Christians. You know, when you have people like, uh, you know, Richard Lewinton saying, you know, in science, we can't allow a divine foot in the door. Or you have people like Richard Dawkins saying about religious people, mock them, ridicule them in public. Uh, that obviously doesn't build much goodwill with, you know, Christians. And so, you know, even when I hear Richard Dawkins, which I know he's, you know, a brilliant evolutionary biologist. Uh, but when he says things about philosophy and religion, which is not his expertise, you know, I'm sometimes shocked and it might, makes me want to reject not only him, but, you know, the science that he stands for and, uh, you know, purports to teach. And so I think a lot of Christians do that too. I think they have this idea that, you know, this kind of scientific conspiracy that scientists, uh, you know, hate Christianity, what they want to promote. Uh, atheism and the vehicle to do that is through, you know, the teaching of evolution. Uh, but I also think there's, you know, blame to be put on, you know, a lot of conservative Christians. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of authors, pastors, apologists who, uh, you know, they're imperfectly equipped freelancers who haven't really studied these things in depth, um, are relying on other people's work who sometimes is also really shoddy. Uh, and they're kind of pontificating. They're spreading this idea that, yeah, you know, like uh, this is the scientific consensus, but, you know, they're wrong. They're just, you know, they have all these ulterior motives. The science is not pure. You can't trust it. Uh, so I think there's blame to be put on, you know, several different groups. What do you think is the most misunderstood about evolution? Oh, there's so many. I could, I could drone on forever, but, you know, one that really bothers me is, uh, you know, this idea of like, you know, the, this hopeful monster kind of speciation where, you know, within a generation you have like a new species arise. Um, I listened to it. I used to listen to a radio talk show host in Metro Detroit. I won't, I won't give him any, you know, press by saying his name, 
But, you know, he used to say, you know, think about it, folks. Uh, if, you know, if monkeys gave rise to humans, uh, you know, a monkey is on the savannah and a monkey gives birth to this human. Who does the human mate with? There are no other humans. There are only monkeys around. It, you know, it used to drive me nuts. Like this idea that you have species A and then all of a sudden it gives birth to species B. Um, sometimes there can be a hopeful monster, like some plants may be able to speciate within a generation, but it's obviously not the norm. That's much the exception. Um, so this idea that, you know, individuals evolve and not populations, really it's populations that evolve um, and not individuals, but uh, it seems to be lost on, you know, most of the general public. Um trying to think of other ones i guess you know the, the idea that evolution is like a straight line progression you know like we see like this horrible example from textbooks like 50 years ago where you have you know kind of like some kind of you know pro simian and then you have you know like an ape and then you have like a caveman and you have like the regular man so this idea that people have that you know there's this progression and a evolves into b evolves into c evolves into d which you know in reality the tree of life is extremely it's not even a tree. It's like a bush. There are so many different ends and side paths and offshoots. And we only have about one end of all species that existed. Uh, so most of those have gone extinct. Uh, you talk about human evolution. They, we know of at least a, you know, a dozen other species that didn't survive to the present day. And there are probably dozens more that you know we may not find or may take years to find. Uh, so this idea that there's like a straight line progression of uh, you know species is just something that Evolutionary biology does not support, but somehow is in a popular sphere. Ben Stein has a famous documentary kind of proponent of intelligent design <laughs> called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. You are in academia. You, you teach mm -hmm. at a university. Is there a conspiracy to uh, get people fired or to keep them out of certain areas of science, or would you call it more of a climate against pseudoscience? How do you, how, how would you answer Ben Stein and the martyr yeah. argument from Discovery Institute? Yeah, that's funny. I remember, you know, I was still, uh, you know, a young Christian and I still, you know, held to evolutionary, I'm sorry, intelligent design and, you know, some kind of form of creationism. I actually went and saw that in the theaters and it blew me away. I thought it was great. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I lost track of that. What was the question? Um, that, that kind of puts forward this idea that uh, people who think about intelligent design or who are proponents of it are an mm. abused minority that they have been targeted to, you know, get them fired or keep yeah. them from getting tenure or that they, they've got the secret truth that this cabal, you know, this secularist cabal mm. wants to keep down these neo-Darwinist bad guys. Um, I, I'm, I, so I'm asking you about the martyrdom complex that that puts forward. Yeah. Is there a conspiracy to to ruin these guys lives or do you think there's just a climate in academia that says this isn't real science? Yeah. <laughs> um, climate or conspiracy when it when it comes to ID in in academia, in, in scientific circles? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, certainly in my experience, there's this, uh, you know, assumption that, you know, Christianity is not allowed in, you know, academia. And, you know, I will have to say, you know, in academia, it's not something that's, uh, 
you know, really discussed much. It's not something that I, in my experience, uh, find that many people are interested in. Uh, you know, people know that I am a devout Christian. They know I go to church, read the Bible every day. Uh, but for the most part, they just don't really seem that interested in talking about it. Uh, in my experience, you know, people may think it's, you know, different or maybe even a little bit odd, uh, but I've never experienced any outright, you know, hostility or condescension. Uh, there is sometimes an undercurrent of, it may be soft, uh, not condemnation or ridicule, but sometimes there's this undercurrent of things like the Templeton Foundation, uh, you know, things like too closely aligned with Christianity, something like Biologos. Some of those are kind of, I don't know how to say, maybe poo-pooed. Uh, but, you know, that's the great thing about science, that if you have data, uh, you know, and that data is, you know, uh, you know, validly collected and, you know, you can publish. So if you have data, you can publish. I mean, that's the problem with intelligent design. I mean, you know, Kitzmiller versus Dover in 2005, you know, essentially the court case that decided the teaching of intelligent design. I mean, at the end of the day, the judge essentially said, you know, you can't teach intelligent design as science because you haven't published anything except in your own books and, you know, your own special journals. You know, if you have data, I mean, you can publish. So, I mean, there's there's not any anti-Christian bias. It's just a bias against things that are not testable hypotheses and that are not science. I mean, there is a bias against, you know, uh, assertions that are based only in religious beliefs and are not testable. Um, and I get that because, you know, the project of science is to look for, you know, empirical data for observable phenomena. Uh, not that there isn't anything outside of that. I uh, mean, these religious suppositions may well be true, but science just can't speak to those issues. And so, you know, to me, any attempt to try to bring, uh, you know, the sphere of, you know, philosophy or religion into science, uh, to me, it's just misconceived. You just, you know, you're, gonna, you're not going to get anywhere, you're going to get off the ground with non-testable hypotheses that are rooted in, you know, religious convictions, even those religious fictions may well be true. Uh, that's just, you've ceased to do science at that point. So I don't see a bias. I mean, in my personal experience, I'm a Christian. I, I think a good number of people know in my department and I haven't experienced much maltreatment or anything. Maybe some curiosity, but. <laughs> Isn't Joel Duff also in your department? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess when I was referring to department, I'm thinking Case Western, but, but yeah, the University of Akron, uh, when I, you know, got the adjunct position, uh, Joel Duff emailed me and he said, Hey, he said, uh, you know, I saw you, uh, contributed in, you know, an article to BioLogos. I'm like, Oh, Joel Duff. I'm like, I know who you are. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I teach evolutionary biology at Maine campus. I'm like, Oh, cool. I'm, I'm at Wayne campus this semester, you know? So it was kind of fun. Yeah, that's neat. Um, so I, I often hear Christians will say things like, uh, well, microevolution can happen. That's just kind of adaptation but um, not macroevolution. So what's wrong with this kind of thinking? What would be a better way to think about the terms microevolution and macroevolution? Yeah, so, you know, I hear this all the time. I hear, you know, in creationist literature, it's like, well, you know, microevolution, that's fine. That's changed within a species, you know, but there, there's a missing mechanism. You need to show us the missing mechanism that gets you from microevolution to macroevolution. And of course, the, you know, the real question is, you know, what mechanism would prevent microevolution from becoming macroevolution? 
you know, because there's a very good argument to be made that macroevolution and, you know, microevolution are quantitatively different, but qualitatively the same. So I use the example all the time. I mean, you know, if you walk, you can walk from your house to the corner store. Uh, but, you know, saying that microevolution will not equal macroevolution is saying, well, you can walk from your house to the corner store, but you can't walk from your house to Fresno, California or Tallahassee, Florida. It, you know, naturally the question is, well, why not? I mean, won't the same process that gets me from my house to the corner store get me to Tallahassee or Fresno eventually? It may take a lot longer time, but, you know, if millimeters can add up to meters, why can't they add up to kilometers and maybe hundreds of kilometers? So I put the burden of proof back on the creationist and intelligent design proponents. I mean, show me a mechanism that can stop microevolution from becoming macroevolution because, you know, the, the I don't see any reason to think that they're quantitatively different, but qualitatively the same. Now, that's a good way to look at it. Um, why do you think so many like apologists are anti-evolution? What's, what's driving it? Do you think it's a, a financial thing? Do you think that they wouldn't get any speaking mm -hmm. engagements if they ex supported evolution? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to psychoanalyze, but I mean, I think that, you know, it may be part of it. I know during the uh, Kitzmiller versus Dover trials, uh, Michael Behe from Lay University, who, you know, he wrote Darwin's Black Box. He's an intelligent design proponent. I remember when he made an admission on the stand that he accepted common ancestor with apes. I know that his, you know, intelligence design colleagues were not happy about it and they were, you know, pretty blown away by that. So I think there is this sense that if you want to do apologetics and you want to be taken seriously by, you know, devout Christians, you kind of have to toe that line and you have to peddle some kind of intelligent design of some sort. Um, I'm trying to think, what was the other part of the question? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it. Um, yeah, the, the suggestion that, that they're, you know, Christine, I, I'm, I don't have to be as generous as our guest. <laughs> so I'm going to say yes. I, I'm going to say I, I'm disappointed too. I, I think part of it is is what Aaron suggested from earlier. As you're coming up through evangelical circles, the majority of the resources are evolution or atheist. I mean, if you're an evolutionist, you're an atheist, then it's anti-God. So they have that coming up. But I think some of the people that you're talking about are smart enough to know the difference and it's not like they're blind mm -hmm. to people like francis collins and these other voices um that have, yeah. have have made it plain but i don't think they'd be invited to too many conferences at evangelical churches <laughs> because the evangelical churches that would invite them think that it's godless and they you know they're the ones yeah. going to the ben stein movie so I, you know, now I think the real question is then why aren't they just silent about it? You know, uh, because it's not, yeah. it's not an integral part. It's not a tier one issue when it comes to evangelism. And it, it could be a tier one obstacle though. Uh, so why do they bother bashing it? And that to me is a tell that it's, it's not, it's not naivete, that it's something that's, it's willful. And it's planned. Who was it who said uh, the famous saying, it's hard to make a man understand something when his paycheck relies on him not understanding it? Um, I think that's very true in, in these cases. Um, with some people I won't name, Frank Turk. 
um, uh, you know, and the others. Um, but yeah. it's really disappointing to me. There's a young group of evangelists or of apologists who accept evolutionary mm-hmm. biology, and and that is. I think good. I almost believe that this generation is an Exodus generation, my generation, and we have to die in the wilderness. And uh, because I don't think there's going to be any convincing grandma. A lot of people are so steeped in this and they're, they're so invested in it being us against the atheists that they've circled mm-hmm. the wagons and they won't listen. They won't read Aaron's book because Aaron is part of the problem he is uh if he's not an apostate he's a reprobate or he's uh, what are the favorite words (laughs) i'm a shill (laughs) and you know the slippery slope that you went on was having the audacity to go to university and because you know you haven't you seen god's not dead um and (laughs) you ended up unfortunately yes (laughs) secular professors sprinkle the the fairy dust over you and you turn into an atheist and you're just calling yourself a christian but so i mean this is the atmosphere you know christine and even the churches that we're familiar with i mean how many of them you you know francis collins is a big name but i i I mean I don't know how many people would invite him to speak. I really don't. I think um, they'd love the first half of his book and hate the second half. Right. Well, and yeah, it's coming out of out of apologetics, like college Biola. teaching. Go ahead and say Bi- it. Biola is a good yeah. example. I mean, Biola in their statement of faith, it has a commitment against evolution in their statement of faith. So anybody coming out of that program is going to be taught evolution is false, regardless uh, of any evidence. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, too, because, uh, you know, like William Lane Craig is like one of my superheroes, you know, Um, it's as close as getting as close to idolatry as I can get without breaking one of the commandments. Mm. You know, he's got two doctorates. I mean, obviously, he's a brilliant guy. Um, But, you know, I hear him uh, talking about the Cambrian explosion and things like that. And instantly when I hear him talking, I know he's parroting from, you know, Stephen C. Meyer's book. I mean, I can hear it word for word. Uh, you know, Abdu Murray, who at least was the North American director for Ravi Zacharias and International Ministries, I kind of informally debated him in the lobby of a church once. And mm-hmm. every word I could hear him saying was lifted straight out of Michael, or I'm sorry, Stephen C. Meyer's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of really intelligent, uh, you know, top-notch apologists are, really heavily relying on people like, you know, you know, Stephen C. Meyer and Michael Behe and all these other people and really not doing their own research. Um, you know, which obviously, you know, I look at Stephen C. Meyer's book and I think, you know, uh, you talk about the Cambridge explosion. What was it? Darwin's doubt. And, you know, I just tear my hair out thinking about all the misinformation about the Cambridge explosion. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, their phyla of animal that came after the Cambridge. You know, there, there were phyla of animal before the Cambrian, at least Cnidarians and Porifarians, possibly several other phyla. Land plants were hundreds of millions of years away from the Cambrian. You know, fungi weren't even there yet. And yet he presents the Cambrian as, you know, Earth was dead and lifeless. And all of a sudden, you know, at midnight, 543 million years ago, just oodles of critters explode into the universe. And, you know, the truth is the Cambrian explosion lasted like 25 million years, even 10 million by very conservative estimates. Yeah. And we see transitional fossils within the Cambrian expen. And, you know, so I think about Stephen C. Meyer and I think must be suppression of evidence. I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, but at the level he's at, it's hard to it, it's hard for me to give him the benefit of the doubt and not just 
conclude that he's in the evidence. And I think, you know, the biggest difference I see between myself and, you know, intelligent design and creationism is, you know, I'm a scientist. I look at the data and I say, you know, what does the data tell me? What conclusions can I draw from this data? Uh, but I think a lot of apologists and pastors and, you know, intelligent design creationists, I think what they do is they say, well, I have the conclusion and, you know, I need to find whatever worth that. Uh, you look at the Ken Ham, Bill Nye debate. I mean, Ken Ham essentially said as much. He said, yeah, I admit, you know, I start from the Bible. That's where I start from. You know, no one's going to convince me otherwise. I start from the Bible and essentially I find what will fit that. And obviously that's not the way we do science. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things uh, I noticed. And uh, Jason Lyle uh, was Ken Ham's partner in a John Ankerberg debate with Hugh against Hugh Ross and Walter Kaiser. Hmm. And Jason Lyle said, uh, I start my study of astronomy with the Bible. And I contrast that with what Mary Schweitzer said when she said she looks into her microscope. She said, I don't bring my faith into my microscope. It's all about the data. And the data are telling me a story and I follow yeah. the truth. And so um, just this idea that we are just going to presuppose something based not on the Bible, but based on our interpretation of the Bible. Now we've yeah. we've really um, but we we're, we're at a point where we have to ask you this question and, it, and you handle it in your book. And the idea that how much of these things overlap that this idea hmm. of science and faith and this idea of our hermeneutic of the Bible or or what the Bible is. Is is the Bible inspired by God, written by mortal men, or is the Bible written by God, whispered to mortal men? I mean, this idea of inerrancy. In your mind, yeah. Aaron, how much of this idea of inerrancy has played a role in people like what you're saying that have come to a conclusion and sift through the data to find uh, confirmation bias? That's a great question. And, you know, to be honest, that's still one I struggle with. I mean, uh, you know, it's been, what, 16 years since I've been a Christian. It's been, uh, I don't know, maybe over 10 years since I've, you know, kind of, uh, you know, accepted evolution. And I still deal with that. Um, you know, one quote that comes to mind is from John Calvin. He says, you know, God is want to, uh, want to whisper to us like a nurse, uh, lisps to an infant. Uh, you know, and I think about that with the Bible, I think, I think it's a categorical mistake to try to look to, you know, Genesis one through three for, you know, uh, uh, literal scientific information. I mean, obviously the style it's written, you can tell it's not like a police report or just kind of a, you know, disinterested retelling of the facts. Uh, this seems like a much different genre of literature. Uh, I mean, there are genres of literature in the Bible where they talk about the temple, the creation of the Temple of Solomon, and they talk about, you know, uh, every detail. They talk about how many windows there were and, you know, how many decorations there were. Uh, but when it comes to the creation of the entire universe and, you know, all plant and animal life, we get, you know, measly two chapters. And I think it's a categorical mistake to try to say, well, you know, they were really trying to communicate scientific truths. I don't think that's what they were interested in communicating. Uh, I think there are some primitive, maybe scientific beliefs that are being communicated. Uh, but it is a difficult question. I mean, how do you reconcile biblical inerrancy, that being the Bible is true and everything it teaches, you know, with this idea that Genesis 1 through 2 seems to, at least on the surface, uh, try to be communicating this idea of a very recent earth 
and, you know, animals coming about through, you know, Kratu ex nihilo or something like that. Uh, that's an issue I haven't really fully resolved yet. Um, it's tough because uh, I think what really makes it tough is the issue of, I think, human evolution and the idea of, uh, you know, literal Adam and Eve or not. Uh, because the New Testament does seem to, you know, uh, there's, you know, when Paul talks about Adam in the New Testament, you do get the sense that uh, Paul is talking about Adam as though he was a real flesh and blood person. And so, you know, it's kind of a semantics game at that point saying, well, you know, like, you know, Paul maybe didn't really think he was a real person or Paul thought he was a real person, but God was okay allowing Paul to think that, you know, and that was kind of a cultural idea that God kind of co-opted to teach this larger idea of, you know, Christ. And and so at that point, you're kind of doing a semantics game like, well, you know, how much can I redefine inerrancy and not lose it? Uh, you know, because the evidence shows that there was not a single human pair at any time in recent history. I know some people have tried to make that work. Like I know uh, Dr. Venema's done some work in that area. Um, but, you know, to be frank, it seems unlikely that we're going to find a primordial human pair that are the progenitors of the entire human race. It's, I'm still working on how do I, uh, how do I, how do I work that into my framework of biblical inerrancy? Cause of course I do want to maintain biblical inerrancy as much as I can. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes I have to suspend judgment. Sometimes I, I don't know and I'm still researching. I, I like what uh, Dennis Lamoureux says about um, in his most recent book, uh, Ancient Science in the Bible, or the Bible and Ancient Science. And he talks about um, inerrant spiritual truths that are housed in uh, ancient science. Uh, as the vessel through which they are communicated, where it is the spiritual truths that are inerrant and enduring, even though the time and the date uh, and the language, even the, the if it was Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or whatever, um, their understanding of nature wasn't complete and correct, but the truths that were communicated remain true. Yeah. So I'd encourage checking out that book. It's uh, I thought he did a really good job unpacking those specific ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, when I read Genesis, I get the idea that, you know, he's speaking to these, you know, people who were in captivity from the Babylonians and had all these other gods. And, you know, I get the sense he's saying, you know, uh, here's some basic truths. Like I did create everything, uh, you know, no matter, you know, what the process or, you know, the laws, whatever. Like, I'm responsible for everything you see. I do sustain it. There's only one God, there's me. And so I can see some some merit to that viewpoint. So I think there are some, you know, truths, scientific truths in uh, the Old Testament and in Genesis. But yeah, to try to, uh, to try to be um, like a concordist, you know, kind of the style of, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, I just mentioned him. Uh Ken Hammer. Hugh Ross? Hugh Ross, yeah. Kind of the style of concordism where you have to find some kind of, you know, modern scientific explanation for everything in the Old Testament. I just don't think that's wise theologically or scientifically. We should just let the Bible speak for itself. And I think that's a different genre where they're not super interested in communicating the truth, but more spiritual ones. 
You know, when I first um, was grappling with these issues and I saw the Ankerberg debates between Ham and um, Hugh Ross, I really thought that was the argument, you know, young earth versus old earth. And and then when I finally realized this, what you you just used the word concordist, uh, when I finally realized that the argument really isn't about the word yam, but what to make of the word firmament, right? Because uh, if the firmament <laughs> was this kind of, you know, Jim Carrey like glass dome, uh, we got we have a problem, uh, Houston, and we're probably reading it wrong. And so but you're kind of presented with that view that it's like Ken Ham against you, Ross. And I, I didn't really know that concordism is really, you, you know, maybe the Bible isn't teaching science here and maybe we can't find modern science in this ancient text. Yeah. And that was kind of mind blowing to me and helped mm -hmm. me, I think, get back to the theology that it's teaching. Uh, I think we just completely missed the theology when we're looking for science there or history. Um, and yeah. uh, we, we, we end up missing the theology, but the, you know, the, the concordist argument was, was big for me. I, I think I first, um, really got a good definition of that from Lauren and Deb Harzma's book, or origins. Mm. Uh, and, um, that was very helpful to, to, because ultimately old earth and young earth creation aren't arguing about the text. They're arguing about the calendar. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. one has a really long calendar and one has a short calendar. They agree about everything else pretty much. And and so, except the demeanor of the two gentlemen is very different too. Hugh Ross is a fine man. And as Christian yeah. likes to say, oftentimes old earth creation or progressive creation is a stepping stone out of, you know, the, the madness of young earth creation. And I get that. And I appreciate yeah. it for that. But at some point, you know, you mentioned fossils and... You mentioned the chimpanzee, the the chromosomes, and and how they deal with that. It's like they hide from that. I mean, I um, reasons to believe is worse than answers in Genesis when it comes to hominins because they don't want to accept any hominins, right? Um, because of their yeah. understanding of uh, what Imago Dei is, you know, being made in the image yeah. of God, and so. It's really troubling because it, it's kind of stealing from one of God's books to buoy up the other one. If you truly believe that God both spoke the world and the word uh, into reality, then why are you willing to to allow that uh, the book of nature to be just pillaged to support your, you know, your interpretation of a word or even 11 chapters in Genesis. I don't know if that wasn't a question, but I'll let you comment on it if you'd like to, Aaron or Christine. It, that's a great observation. I mean, you know, it makes me laugh. Uh, you know, when I think about some of those powerful evidence of, you know, common ancestry, you know, think about like endogenous retroviruses. So, you know, these are viruses that, you know, if they make their way into uh, you know, either egg or sperm, they're passed on, they become part of our genome. So humans have about 203,000 retroviruses. Uh, and with chimps, we share every single one of them, except I believe 86. So 99.96% of our endogenous retroviruses we share with chimpanzees. So we're talking the same virus in the same region of our genome. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to explain apart from common descent. You think, what could the what could the rebuttal possibly be from the intelligent design camp? And you know, of course, there is one. So I look it up, and you know, it's this paper written by the Discovery Institute, and it's like twenty pages long. 
And, you know, as someone with six degrees, I'm working on my seventh, you know, at the PhD level, I could barely understand this paper that the intelligent, you know, the Intelligent Design Institute put out. And so finally, I read the paper a couple of times and I realize what they're saying is, well, you know, uh, you know, endogenous retroviruses tend to gravitate towards certain regions of the genome, uh, which doesn't solve the problem at all because, yeah, certain region, but not the exact same spot we find in humans and chimps. And not only that, but then that undercuts their under argu- other argument that humans and chimps are not similar genetically, that we're very different genetically. Uh, you know, you tell them, well, humans and chimps in their protein coding regions share 99.6% of their DNA. They said, well, that's not true. Well, we share 80% of our DNA with yeast. But then when they talk about endogenous retroviruses, they want to say, well, you know, the fact that humans and chimps are so similar genetically allows parallel integration to 2,899 endogenous retroviruses just happened to land in the same exact spot in our genome, same exact virus. Just It just happened to be. And, you know, what I realized what they're doing is if I, as a you know PhD level scientist, can't understand a paper except by reading it three times. I know what they're doing because I've had friends that tell me, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, they've dealt with this. I read the paper. What they did was they looked at the paper. They saw there were giant $20 words they don't understand, tons of jargon. And they thought, well, you know, these people sound really smart. I can't understand it. They must have some really good reason for rejecting the evidence on endogenous retroviruses. I guess there's nothing to see here. Move on. And to me, it just smells of purposeful obfuscation. And, you know, trying to just give people a snow job and just throw a bunch of jargon and fancy words at them, making them think there's some kind of plausible deniability when it comes to endogenous retroviruses, which, you know, someone who understands it like me, I understand that they're not really saying anything novel. This isn't a knockdown argument. They're not really adding anything to the discussion to, you know, refute. They're not even engaging with the evidence really or refuting it. Yeah, for, for me, the the thing that bothers me the most is um, the dishonesty, right? Why, why would it be necessary? Why would you even want to support Christianity by being dishonest? I think I have an answer for you. I think I have an answer for you. And part of it is (laughs) psychological in that even when they interview men on death row, they find out that we are always the hero of our own narrative, right? I mean, Hmm. We are always there's always a justification even for heinous acts. And Christine, what I think they see this as 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 a war, you know, between good uh-huh. and evil. And as Winston Churchill um, uh, spoke of the deceit that the that the allies perpetrated during World War Two, it was a greater good. You know, um, we were we were. Mm-hmm you know, using this deceit to overthrow something that is in, intrinsically wicked. And so it's okay. It's even mm. honorable, right? I mean, we should even get medals for this kind of uh, stuff. I, I think that's the only way they could deal with it uh, because uh, it, it is obvious at the higher levels, not not the typical person you talk to on a Facebook right. site who reads intelligent design <laughs> stuff, but the guys at the higher level, they know, I mean, they know how compelling this evidence is. And yet I think they're convinced that, you know, biological evolution is the same as cultural Marxism and it's going to lead to more abortion right. and more gay sex and more whatever they quantify as bad. Uh, yeah. And so they're going to fight it. You know, I, I see a lot of people in the Christian culture war movement 
quoting the Old Testament. In other words, oh, that's my that's my Bella. Okay, Bella. Bella, that's Bella's way of saying amen or 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 make it or, or stop talking. But um, you know, in their mind, they're not Jesus. Um, you, you know, uh, leaning down with the basin of water, washing your enemy's feet. They're they're. They're Elijah smiting the prophets of Baal. So in their mind, yeah. they're doing the Jericho march. They're, we're mar- marching mm-hmm. around the secular city seven times, blowing our shofar. So to them, they've justified this attitude, but it's getting further and further away from Jesus. And as you said, further and further away from actual truth. And and that's what's disappointing. But that's what's refreshing, uh, forgive me, about your work, Aaron, and others like you, because there are younger kids that can sniff this out. Yeah, there are y- young people can sniff this out. And, and and this is going to crush their faith eventually when when they, like Rhett yeah. before them, you know, really thought that these people were being honest and that, that they were good defenses and that, you know, the secularists can't handle this. And, you know, people actually believe that they don't want to debate Stephen Meyer because they're going to lose to Stephen Meyer. And, you know, um, so I, I do think that this is a huge problem within Christianity. And and I have to say this to you, Aaron, as a challenge. Uh, the skeptics who are watching the show are saying, why are you trying to make sense of it with the Bible or with inerrancy? Why aren't you just doing uh, the adult thing and walking away from it. So, so let me ask you the tough question yeah. here. If you see so much obfuscation with people who claim the name of Jesus, and and I mm-hmm. and I know their their fellow believers, I'm not questioning their their identity in Christ. Yeah. But when you see when you see, for example, going back to the first division between science and faith, going back to astronomy, you know, half a millennia ago, when Christians dug their feet in. Uh, and and on geocentricity and f- fought for 200 years the evidence of yeah. of the telescope, uh, and now you see him doing the same thing and making Darwin, um, you know, the the fourth member of the uh, triunity of evil. Um, how how do you how do you square that with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit and having the mind of Christ and having all the advantages as a spiritual man that the natural man doesn't have? And how do you say to our unbelieving peers who trust the science and who might trust God's book of nature more than Christians do? Uh, how, how do you square that? How do you square such error when it comes to the natural world and even the theological world and all the different divisions in it. That's a great question. Uh, yeah, I'll try to parse that out by, you know, saying first, I mean, you know, the great thing about science for me is that, you know, it, it has certain limitations and it has a, you know, certain scope. It is a project of what it's trying to do. And so science is great at, you know, making things like, you know, computers in our pocket and planes and, you know, artificial hearts. Science is you know, but science at the end of the day, it can't tell us the things we really want to know. You know, is there an afterlife? Uh, you know, is there a God? You know, or there's are there such things of, as objective morals, things we ought and ought not to do? Into uh, you know, as a scientist and someone who has faith, you know, it's just a different tool for you know different questions. Uh, you know, people crack me up. I mean, there are people I've encountered in my scientific career who, you know, say, well, you know, if uh, you know, if it's not empirically verifiable, then I just, you know, out of hand reject it. I don't even consider it. 
um, which is just absurd. I mean, you know, to try to use science as a be all end all to detect if there's an afterlife, if there's a God, it's like, you know, a metal detector, a metal detector is great at detecting metal, uh, but it's not going to work if you're looking for, you know, earth or grass, you know, so trying to use science to answer some of these, you know, religious or philosophical questions, it's like taking a metal detector and grass and, you know, then beeps and it's like, oh, then here. It's a way that there's no metal, of course, because that's what it's designed to detect is metal. But there's there's earth, there's, you know, there's plants. And so, you know, it's, uh, you know, for me, I guess trying to get to the original question. The original question being... Let, let, let me ask you about that, because you brought up something mm-hmm. about that uh, that you're saying. And I understand that there's there are a few scientists like Dawkins and others who, who would... Yeah you know, make that claim, uh, uh, Peter Atkins and, and others who, who just rely completely on materialism. But but what about the more vulnerable types? Like, let's take, for instance, Carl Sagan. And and Carl mm. Sagan writes Contact. And, and in the movie version, at least, there's that famous scene where Matthew McConaughey is talking to Jodie Foster. And, and she is giving that materials viewpoint. You know, if she can't test it and measure it and weigh it, she doesn't believe in it. And he asks her the question, well, did you love your dad? Hmm. And she said, of course. And he said, prove it. And so uh, <laughs> this is Carl Sagan writing that. And if if yeah. uh, if somebody like Carl Sagan can show that vulnerability, that science can't answer hmm. everything or prove everything, uh, yeah. especially there are other moments in that book that did the same thing. Uh, if they're being vulnerable, um, who's going to be more, res- I mean, what's going to be more receptive to the young kid who's looking for truth, who's looking for somebody who's not scared of the truth. And he sees Jordan Peterson saying, I don't know on the intellectual dark web. But then on our side, he's seen Frank Turek saying, not only do I know, but I know everything. Get in line and I'll give you answers to everything you're asking me. In Um, one minute. Yeah. In one minute. Yeah. So, I mean, what is out of joint about our Christian witness that we have to give every man every answer? And some of them are really bad answers. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I laugh at, you know, people like, oh, you know, Bible answer, man. Like you said, you know, call in and I'll give you the answer on anything in one minute. You know, it's like, this guy doesn't have any specialized training in, you know, uh, you know, philosophy or history or, you know, science, but, you know, you call in and in one minute, he'll tell you the exact answer. Um, yeah, you know, I guess for me, you know, to humility and just, you know, honesty, I mean, yeah, I would caution anybody, you know, a pastor, an apologist, uh, anybody who, you know, is not really dug into this, you know, type of literature, uh, anybody who's not completely certain, you know, just, if you know, it, don't, definitely don't condemn it. And at the least, you know, maybe just not voice your opinion. If you don't have something substantive to say, if you haven't really researched, uh, if you haven't done your homework, then, you know, you probably shouldn't be talking about it. Uh, yeah, I do find the lack of, the lack of openness and the lack of humility to be disturbing because, you know, I do hear apologists that are so confident, you know, talking about, you know, the Cambrian explosion or, you know, talking about flagellar motors and things like that. And, you know, I can tell that they're just, they're just pontificating. It's like they have a brief and they're just reading off it. And that is something that you do see on the secular side, at least in my experience in academia, 
you do see a willingness to, you know, explore at least any kind of scientific hypothesis. Uh, people are willing to engage in it and, you know, just kind of dispassionately dialogue about it. Um, you know, I wish there was more of a, that philosophical mindset where, you know, I've had a little bit of formal coursework, coursework in philosophy and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of my uh, hobby horse and, you know, philosophy, you know, there's no bad question. There's no wrong question. There's no evil question. You can ask any question about God, about man, about you know, existence. There's no out of bounds. You can safely ask anything and you can just dispassionately discuss it rationally. Um, and I do find sometimes in Christian circles, you know, like you said, like the, there is an out of bounds, you know, like we have to hold firm on this and, you know, this is the answer and you kind of have to toe the line. And, you know, it is upsetting to me that there's kind of a lack of humility saying, well, you know, like I have a philosophy and theology PhD, but, you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist. Because, um, you know, someone like William Lane Craig, I've actually emailed him multiple times, you know, spilled a lot of, you know, ink, you know, trying to correct some of the things he said. And to his credit, he has looked into it and addressed some of it and corrected some of it in his podcasts. Um, but, you know, I've sent Lee Strobel multiple copies of my book. I've sent it to his office. I sent it to his home. And, you know, most people I've sent copies of my book, it's like they're just not even interested in engaging with it. It's like they have that they want. You know, they kind of, like you said, they make, they sell lots of books using it. And that's just kind of it. Hmm. They, you know, when I like uh, Abdu Murray, uh, yeah, I like Abdu Murray. You know, I, kn I knew him before he was the uh, RZIM, North American director. Uh, well, not really knew him well, but I knew of him and talked to him. But, you know, uh, when he gave a uh, Skeptics Night, uh, talk at my church, you know, I kept writing down these things like, you know, he's, he's misinformed about this. He's misinformed about that. Like, and I thought, you know, naively, well, well, you know, afterwards I'll just talk to him and I'll set the record straight. Like he's a lawyer, you know, he's not a, he's a lawyer and apologist. He's not an evolutionary biologist. Like, let me just inform him. And so of course you can, you can guess how that went afterwards, you know, I'm bringing these things up and he's just digging his heels in like, no, 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 no. Like there were no animals before the Cambrian. No, 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 no. Like all the, all the animals came into existence of the Cambrian. I'm, you know, and I'm like, I'm starting to realize that he's not really open to, to, to exploring this or changing his mind or considering the evidence. It's like he read the Stephen C. Meyer book. He got the answer that I guess is the right answer. And, you know, he's just kind of over it. Like he's just going to dig his heels in and defend like the answer that he's supposed to give, which is kind of eye opening and disappointing to me. Which is why I, I think a lot of Christian apologetics has no real interest in persuading anybody but confirming mm. a group that's already persuaded and so and me is, to the crowd yeah i think this is the, what's so disturbing and that's why when i see young people who are interested or curious about christianity um and they they can tell i i mean they can tell that joe rogan has more sincerity and authenticity than than yeah. the voices of Christianity that you're that we've been bringing up here because they're so insecure when you have to have an answer for everything and you never say I don't know or let me think about that or that's when you can't concede anything and look this idea that the atheists are always wrong actually no the atheists are right <laughs> an awful lot about certain things and and to not make any yeah. concessions um, it tells people that are on the fence or that are skeptical, why are these guys so insecure? 
And, um, it, you know, coming from a scientific perspective, like you said, a, a kid who, who weighs the evidence uh, psychologically and, and in the weight of evidence, this is putting yourself at a huge disadvantage even before they even look at the, the even before they're even pre, pre, presented with any evidence. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, what do you, do you have any insight or ideas as to, uh, Christine brought up that this is really not just from the pulpit level, but possibly even the seminary level and pastors in the pulpit as a pastor of 20 years, I can tell you that, um, my peers, uh, we, we were some of the biggest cowards in the world because anything that might affect giving or attendance Ooh, we're, you know, that's the third rail. Let's not talk about it or, you know, and um, so I, I, you know, what is the solution here when, when you're looking at, 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 at a problem that is seminary level training our pastors, the pastors get into the pulpit and they take questions as a lack of faith and not as intellectual curiosity and our kids grow up in that environment and they go to university like you did and see uh, just a wonderful place where they can ask anything and they're treated like an adult and not like some disobedient, you know, pagan demon or something. And um, how do we hope to have a better tomorrow as in a Christian witness. What are, are, do you have any, I mean, you wrote a book. I mean, obviously that's a solution. You want people to read your book, but it's really good. Would you make any other recommendations (laughs) as to how we can overcome this kind of blindness? Uh, Dennis Lamro, Christine mentioned earlier, Dennis Lamro said it might take generations to overcome this. Are you as pessimistic as Dennis or do you have any uh, insight into that? You know, I am optimistic. Um, you know, uh, I think about, I don't know, I don't remember who said the quote, but, you know, someone said, you know, Christianity does it best when exposed to the air, you know, when exposed to the fresh air. I think that's true. I think, you know, loving God with all our minds, I think means really engaging with difficult questions, even scary questions. And so I think part of the solution is, you know, cultivating a Christian culture that's not as much motivated by fear. As in, you know, if, if evolution you know, were to be true, I don't know what I would do that would shake up my worldview. I wouldn't know what to do about inerrancy. Um, I know for me, that was a big motivator. Why I didn't dig further than I did past, you know, apologist is because I was afraid of what I might find. Every time someone talked about evolution, I get that kind of knot in my stomach and I just didn't want to talk about it. And so I just kind of regurgitate what I had read. And so I think going from a culture of fear uh, you know, where you do apologetics, you teach curricula, you teach, you know, sermons out of fear uh, to going to, you know, kind of that model of loving God with all your mind and engaging with any question. You know, uh, I'd hope that we can talk about anything, you know, sexuality, uh, abortion, you know, uh, you know, science. I, mean, I don't think there should be any limits. Um, but, you know, I think it's uh, I think part of that is, you know, like you touched on humility. I mean, you know, I'm not ever going to give a lecture on aerospace engineering because, you know, I don't know enough about it to, to intelligently talk about it. I can read a couple books and maybe read a Wikipedia article, but you know, obviously compared to you, I, I really, I'm not, I don't have any business talking about aerospace engineering. And, you know, obviously I understand like the office of the pastor, you, you do have to field questions on Genesis and human origins. Uh, but, you know, I've had lots of pastors in my life that, you know, are very humble, you know, some of them bees and they just say, well, you know, I I really am not that qualified to talk about it. These are some ideas. These are some things I've read. Here's some resources. Um, 
But, you know, like you're talking about that openness, you know, like Joe Rogan's willing to talk about anything with anybody. You know, he doesn't shut people out. He doesn't say, oh, well, you're not welcome. We can't talk about that. I think that's part of his appeal. And I hear my undergrad researchers talking about him all the time. And so I checked him out. I was like, what is the deal with this guy? And it is refreshing because like you said, you know, he doesn't have this, you know, he doesn't have kind of the blinders on where you can't go here or here. He's willing to sit down and talk with anybody about anything. Um, not that we can't have convictions, but it's in kind of that that openness, that marketplace of ideas, which, you know, like you said, I mean, the, the university is supposed to be the pinnacle, you know, like having unity out of this diversity of all these different ideas that you can evaluate and discuss and, you know, weigh, you know, come to a decision. Um, and I don't know if a lot of that is born out of, you know, kind of this uh, fundamentalist kind of retreat, you know, out of culture into like private Christian universities. I don't know if it was the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925 where, you know, uh, you know, the teacher got convicted of teaching evolution. It was later appealed. Um, but it does seem like, yeah, there's been a retreat of mainstream Christian culture, or at least devout, you know, biblical mainstream Christian culture, like into kind of the closet of academia. So having this insular society, this echo chamber of, you know, well, this is what we believe about evolution and, you know, the, I think I think part of the solution is, again, like loving God with all our minds and having more of this philosophical kind of university disposition where, you know, you can weigh these ideas and you can discuss them without fear, you know, being called a heretic. Which if you read the Amazon reviews on my book, I've been called a heretic plenty of times. You know, I'm a fake Christian or I'm, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I think in an environment where we can just, you know, discuss these ideas without fear of being judged or, you know, being called a heretic. I think that's an important part, but I guess, you know, circling back to your original question, I'm, I'm optimistic uh, because, you know, as far as I understand, it seems like there is a renaissance going on in, you know, academias, as far as some specific fields like philosophy. It seems like uh, there are many more Christians in philosophy uh, than there were, you know, 30, 50 years ago. Um, and I think philosophy, at least for me, is a gateway to a lot of these other things like, you know, you know science, you know, and, uh, you know, textual criticism, whatever. Um so I think there is a renaissance going on. Like you, you know, like you mentioned, there's a lot more resources than there were even when I was looking at it. You know, there's BioLogos now. There's a lot of people writing on this topic. Uh, so I'm hopeful, but I think, like you said, it you know it may take a generation or two. But I'm optimistic. Did, I, I don't know. I see. I see too, though. Right now, with this pandemic and COVID and masks and um, the the church. And maybe I'm talking about my church, but I know mine isn't alone. Um, the lack of being willing to talk about the tough science topics has left a vacuum in how to talk about science and how to evaluate when the CDC recommends wearing masks. Um, why should we do that, right? Why, why not? And there's just this distrust of scientists and a feeling um, by some members of our congregation that this is government oppression on Christianity. Um, and I feel like this vacuum where we haven't been talking about science and faith and how to evaluate quality resources. Um, you know, as an aerospace engineer, I'm definitely not qualified to talk about evolution. Um, but I would point people to resources and mention, okay, so 99% of biologists affirm evolution. Maybe we should pay attention to what they're saying. Um, and, I, and I feel like we don't have a voice in our congregations, or at least not in mine, 
that's mm. saying, let's listen to those who have studied, who are experts in these fields and hear what they have to say. Yeah. I guess there's not really a question there, but, but what do you think are, what do you think is the consequence of, of avoiding talking about science or, or allowing the pseudoscience voices to have the attention? Yeah. No, that's important. And yeah, it has, uh, obviously, as you can see with COVID, some, some real life implications. They can. I mean, even when I'm teaching my evolutionary biology class, I tell people, you know, you don't have to believe me. That's fine. If you don't believe me, we can still be friends. That's totally cool. But, you know, do your own homework. Uh, don't believe me. You know, look at some references. You know, go to, you know, some reputable uh, resources like universities. You know, check this yourself. Um, so, well, and you, know, and you see, in, too, in my book, I have like 600 references. I mean, almost everything is footnoted. Uh, so I try to follow the same philosophy with my book. You know, don't believe me. If you don't believe me, check the resources out for yourself, uh, inform yourself, and make a good decision based on that. I guess it's hard, though, because, you know, even at my level, if I read something kind of outside my wheelhouse, like I was reading some papers on COVID yesterday, uh, you know, sometimes it's even hard for me to understand a paper that's not in my narrow field of expertise uh so that is a challenge um you know because if i can't figure it out then you know how does the the general public with you know i think our science education is what like 20 like 28th in the world in the developed world so science education in the u.s is not you know that great to begin with so judge information like you know you know wearing masks you know social distancing stuff like that one of the things I know from my congregation is there's uh, a huge surge in homeschooling this year, um, partly because of COVID and the unusual situations of um, is your school hybrid or online and the hours and how do you work around that or whatever. Um, and, and I see homeschooling as a good choice for a number of families, but I also have Oh, just some heartache that there's going to be a number of families with the best of intentions who want to honor God and teach their children about Jesus and about how God is the creator who will inadvertently choose curriculum that presents a lot of misinformation. Um, yeah. Do you have recommendations for families who are homeschooling on how to do a good job of choosing science curriculum? Um, do you have recommendations for any particular science curriculum? Um, we spoke with Christy Hemphill a little bit ago, and she talked about the BioLogos Integrate, but that's more of a high school mm. level. What about families with young children? Yeah, I've, uh, I've heard and read about some some doozies and some of the homeschool curricula, like, you know, talking about things like, uh, you know, the Loch Ness Monster being evidence of, you know, dinosaurs recently being on the earth and it is some real whoppers and I think, oh my goodness, you know, like a, you know, mainstream secular education, the public school level is bad enough when it comes to science. You know, this takes it to a whole new level. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult one. I mean, you know, my wife and I plan to homeschool and so we haven't really thought too deeply about it. Um, I was going to mention BioLogos because I know they do have some resources, but, you know, that does seem to be geared towards, you know, kind of a, an older audience. Uh I mean, I would hope, I know, you know parenting, if you're, if you're a homeschool parent, you probably don't have a lot of extra time uh, and it's probably, you know, easier just to buy some prepackaged curriculum rather than make it your own. 
Uh, but I would hope that, you know, if parents are, you know, taking this seriously and they think it's a topic that's worthy of real consideration and some real thought, I'd hope they take the initiative on their own, maybe to pick up, you know, an undergraduate textbook in evolutionary biology, uh, kind of figure out what they will in, you know, maybe gear some of the resources uh, or, you know, teach their children some of the resources that they've found to be, you know, trustworthy. I mean, even in my class, I assigned some videos off YouTube uh, and, you know, I watched them first to make sure they're credible and reliable. Uh, but I think there are a number of secular resources that can be taken advantage of. And, you know, sometimes they may have something that is, um, you know, materialistic or maybe even slightly, you know, anti-religious. Uh, but, you know, I plan on using that as a teaching moment. I plan on, you know, talking with my daughter, and my son about, you know, well, this is the claim, you know, what is the evidence for that claim? Uh, you know, why don't we accept that? What do we believe that's different? You know, what can you think of? Uh, so I plan on using that hopefully as a teaching moment because, you know, like we've all talked about people, you know, they're going to encounter this in the wild at some point. They're only going to be homeschooled for so long and then they're going to figure out there's other people and they're going to get out into the world and go to school. Uh, you know, so I don't want to, you know, raise my kids in this, you know, bubble where, you know, we always have the answers and, you know, there's no opposition. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about resources for homeschool, but, uh, you know, as I plan to teach my daughter about it, I plan to, you know, I guess use a lot of multimedia like YouTube, BioLogos, and I guess it's a little harder than just having a prepackaged curriculum, but I guess I plan on doing it piecemeal. Mm-hmm. What kind of advice would you offer to youth pastors uh, or youth leaders for how to talk with students about science and faith? Um, in like small group settings or in youth group? Yeah, I guess the number one thing I would say is... reading your book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a great way. But maybe not. It's kind of long. It's funny. I think I've had one person that knows me that's ever read the entire book. Like all my friends, all my family, I think they've gotten like 10 pages in and it's just uh, propping up a a kitchen table or lining a birdcage somewhere. Uh, but yeah, aside from reading my book, you know, I think, uh, first anybody who's teaching on, you know, topics of, you know, human origins or the age of the earth, they should really take a big, you know, spoonful of, uh, caution and uh, humility. Uh, you know, I, I would say that my biggest advice is just, you know, don't overextend yourself. It's, it's definitely okay to say, I don't know. I mean, I said earlier when it comes to, you know, Adam and Eve, when it comes to, you know, Genesis one through three, I, I really don't know on some of that. And I may never know. Uh, I'm still looking into it, but I don't know. So I guess that willingness to, to, to admit that this is something outside your area of expertise, um, and definitely caution against making, you know, really bold, you know, well, this is false. This is true. We don't believe this. Um, but yeah, I can appreciate how that's tough as a pastor because, you know, kids want to know, they want a concrete answer. They're probably not going to be happy with some kind of hand wavy, like, well, you know, I'm not really sure there's different schools of thought. Um, but, you know, I, I wish I wish that earlier in age there would have been more honesty and humility and uh, more openness about it and not just, well, yeah. you know, this is what it is. Don't worry about what they say. Um, I had a, you know, a close personal friend. He actually teaches it, the kids at his church. And he came to me one day. Uh, we were working together and he said, yeah, he said, you know, uh, you know, I talked to the kids about, you know, evolution the other night. I was like, oh, really? I was like, what did you say to them? 
He's like, oh, I told him, you know, they, they have some kind of supposed evidence and things like that, but it's really nothing to worry about. They don't really have anything. It's not true. Mm-hmm. I was like, dude, like you're a history man. You're like, you don't know anything about evolution or biology. Like, you just set these kids up for a crisis of faith at some point in their life. And I know because, you know, that was me. I mean, that's partially who I wrote for. You know, it was people who have been, you know, fed this, you know, uh, you know, oh, there's nothing to it. Don't worry about it. You know, you know, nothing to see here. Just keep moving along. And then, you know, you go to the university level and you realize, wait, you know, I've, I've been fed a, a, a line this whole time. You know, I've been sold a bill of goods. Like, you know, they didn't tell me about this. They, you know, misconstrued this. And so I wrote it for, you know, partially for, you know, those kids who, uh, you know, are one day going to, you know, go to, you know, the university and they're going to encounter the evidence themselves and they're going to have a crisis of faith because they were, they were set up for it from the beginning. One of the things that, I mean, you mentioned, you know, how to handle it with kids. I, I, I encourage people to, you know, if it was me, I'd say, this is what I am seeing here. Um, you know, I always start with what, what to me is obvious or what I know, although I say, this is what I see. And then I say, but these are the questions I still have. Right. So I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of encourage in, in my teaching of my children or of younger children, this idea that uh, good questions are, are better than pat answers. And so mm. uh, we, we want them to explore the questions and come to their own conclusions, you know, in a, yeah. in, in a sensible way uh, and not to be afraid of questions. And I think when they see that an adult still has questions, it's actually a good thing <laughs> for them. Uh, yeah. You know, like you said, you're still wrestling with things. And I think if you share that with people, they respect that. I, I, my father was a pastor too. And one of the biggest moments of influence on me is when I brought up a question to him on a a passage in Ephesians and he didn't answer for a second. And then he said, you know, I don't know. That's a great question. Let me think about it. (laughs) So, you know, here I was in the fifth grade and I thought, wow. Uh, And uh, it made me marvel, not my own intellect, but that my father was humble enough to say, you know, I hadn't considered that. Let me think about it. But that's not a typical reflex of most Christians. We have to have the right answer. And if we don't have it, we'll buy the book that says 200 right answers to difficult questions by one of those (laughs) gentlemen you mentioned earlier. And uh, and we'll memorize what the answer was. My my father used to say that Christians oftentimes wander around looking to see whom they can plug their umbilical cord into. And um, uh, I think a lot of people do that with William Lane Craig. They let him do their thinking for him because he's smart, you know. So, or with yeah. Stephen Meyer, with Stephen Meyer's book, and yeah. you said with the jargon and the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But I, I really do think that we need to get to the place where we we teach that that um, it's okay to still have questions, and actually, good questions show that you you know you're thinking about it intellectually and not just emotionally. Yeah, I think that ties in a lot too with teaching that the Bible is living and active um, and not just a little kid's story that you can all learn by the time you're eight. And then there's nothing else to explore and learn. I mean, it's the Bible has so much more depth and so much more wisdom that we have to continue to keep growing into it. It's not some little children's fairy tale story that just has a single, you know, story arc and then that's it and there's nothing more to learn um helping our kids see that that there's so much depth that even after a lifetime of studying there's more to learn yeah 
yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, like the it seems to me like the higher up you get, you know, as far as like a, you know, like education, like the more you see people who are willing to say like I don't know, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, in grade school, it's like you know they ask a question, they always have an answer. You know, I was surprised when I got to university. A lot of times, someone asked the professor a question that I, I don't know. Isn't this your expertise area? Like, isn't this your field? Yeah, no, but I don't know. And so, yeah, I think that idea of uh, you know humility and being willing to admit you don't know, I think that's huge. I would imagine that carries a lot of weight with you know teenagers and youth groups. Yeah, Aaron, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Christine, do you have more? Do you have anything else? Well, actually, I'd turn it over to you, Aaron. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Any final thoughts to share with our audience or um, questions that you get often that, that we didn't touch on? I'm just grateful to, you know, be able to have a discussion with you all. And I'm just, it's so great that people are engaged in this discussion. It makes me really happy because, you know, initially, so one of, some of my frustration was that there, I didn't hear any voices out there. I didn't know there were any other voices out there. You know, I felt like I was alone and, you know, I had a crisis of faith. I mean, I thought for, you know, a little while I might have to give up this Jesus thing because obviously the evolution of biology, it seems true. And I've been told it can't coexist. So I'm so thankful that, you know, now there's a plethora of voices, you know, thoughtfully dialoguing about it. And that just really, that makes me happy and, you know, gives me hope. Aaron, Christine called me uh, or might have been texted me. I don't know. I get confused. Very excited about a book she had just read called Deliver Us from Evolution. Let me ask you, with Christmas approaching right now, who do you recommend uh, uh, for uh, a gift of this as a stocking stuffer? Who, Who's the type of audience that this book um, is going to reach and needs to reach? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I wrote it with several different audiences in mind. You know, even I wrote it in mind on Christians because I know, you know, some people in my circle, uh, you know, in the academic biology circle, you know, what is the big deal with all this? You know, why are Christians so uptight about this and, you know, wrapped around the axle? And, you know, I wrote my book partially to say, hey, you know, like this is this is a big deal with inside Christianity. Uh, it may not make sense from a secular standpoint, uh, but I tried to write my book partially to help. Uh, people in the secular world understand, like, what is this all about? You know, why are Christians so upset about it? Uh, I also wrote it for people who are disenfranchised. Uh, you know, I've been at many churches where I feel disenfranchised myself. I'm a devout Bible-believing Christian. And, you know, the minute someone finds out you accept evolution, you know, they're, they're suspicious of you. Um, you know, it, it, it could be lonely. So I wrote that also for people, you know, who are in the faith who have accepted evolution but don't feel like they have a place. Uh, I also wrote it for people. Uh, I'm trying to think. What was the third one? I had three of them. I lost my third train of thought. Well, if if it comes back, you jump back in. Um, <laughs> I I look at it, um, and I I would like to suggest to parents who are upset that their kids have either left the faith or are questioning the faith because they can't reconcile it with science i would i would encourage you to read this book and i'll tell you why and um it's the story of stan telking stan was a, a a nominal jewish man whose daughter came home from the university um 
and and uh, she she came out of the closet as a Christian, which is heartbreaking to any good Jewish family. And Stan did what every any loving father would do after he kvetched and moaned about it uh, to everybody in his community. He bought a copy of the Bible and he said he's going to look at the Bible and read it. And he's going to write down all these questions to bring to his rabbi because he's sure his daughter was wrong. And he read the book and he wrote down the questions and he went to his rabbi and his rabbi didn't have good answers. And Stan Telkin himself became a Christian. But the reason I'm bringing this up is he wrote a book called Betrayed. He felt betrayed yeah. by his daughter. He thought his daughter had betrayed not only the family, but the community and, and their Jewish ethnicity. But then he looked mm-hmm. at what she saw and he was willing to open his mind and his heart to the evidence. And he went where the evidence followed. So if you're upset, if you think your child has gone down a slippery slope, um, your child right now might be in, in the process of deconverting because they've been taught mm-hmm. bad information about the faith and unnecessary information about the faith. And Aaron's yeah. book could actually be the safety net that uh, th- that allows them not to throw the baby away with the bathwater and allows them to hold on to the essentials, the fundamentals, the mere Christianity that we all can celebrate around the Lord's table. So I would encourage you, if you're a parent who's frustrated, with your atheist son who just came home from university, walk with them in in their journey and be open to the information, at least inform yourself and read Aaron's book. So that's my pitch, but did it come back to you, Aaron? I'm gonna suggest an audience too. I'm gonna suggest an audience of youth pastors and youth leaders. Um, They need to know what's in this book too, so that when they're teaching their youth, um, they're not, pulling out straw man arguments or dismissing evolution as, um, you know, there's not really any evidence for it. I think our youth pastors and youth leaders need to know the strength of of the evolutionary um, foundation and why it's so persuasive to biologists Um, before they go off and make those arguments that aren't going to stand up when a student goes off to college and takes a course on biology. So I think that this is the book for um, pastors, youth pastors, youth leaders, uh, you know, parents would fit in that that same boat as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's another group. Uh, it, also, another group, you know, like we're talking about before is, uh, you know, I, I just hope to remove barriers to faith, I guess, is one thing I'm trying to do. Because, uh, you know, uh, my best man at my wedding, my best friend is, you know, he's an avowed atheist, you know, at times even an anti-theist. And, you know, I've asked him, you know, would you ever, you know, consider a worldview that thinks, you know, baby dinosaurs are brought on the ark? Mm-hmm. And he said, absolutely not. He said, that's crazy. He said, do do Christians, do some Christians believe that? I was like, well, there's at least a Christian radio show talk, talk show host that I li- that have listened to that believes that. And other people believe that too, that, you know, baby dinosaurs are on the ark. Somewhere in Kentucky that believes that too, but yeah. Yeah. Right next to the, the incest was okay exhibit before God declared it not okay. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I, some people, it's just, it's, it's a no go like this, uh, you know, the Christian worldview sans evolution. They're thinking, you know, I don't want to have faith in one pocket. My brain's in the other. Like, I don't want to have to check my brain at the door. And so, you know, part of my book is I'm trying to remove barriers to faith saying you don't have to check your brain at the door. You can still, you can still worship God, you know, with all your heart, mind, and spirit. You can still pursue the book of nature and you can also, you know, pursue the, 
you know, the written word, the book of life. Yeah, I think the problem uh, in a lot of American Christian or Western Christianity is that they believe we believe um, that the gospel answer that Paul gave when he asked about the Philippian, when asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that the world was created in six 24 hour days and that T-Rex bunked with Noah on the ark. And in this, uh, and in the right uh, to keep and bear arms, and that uh, life begins at conception, and that marriage is one man, one woman, and we mix in all this cultural stuff that may be good or may be bad into the actual yeah. pure gospel message, which Paul says in an, mm. is an anathema in another letter. And um, yeah. it, the answer was, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved." And you find out that there have been many people from Billy Graham to C.S. Lewis, probably the two greatest apologists and evangelists of the 20th century, who had absolutely yeah. no problem with biological evolution. And uh, and, and so I think uh, if, if your book is one of a number of resources um, that, that explains that to people who have this built-in animosity or suspicion of, of, of not just evolution, but really all of modern science, um, yeah. that, that it, it'll be a powerful... Uh, witness uh, and a powerful tool to remove those barriers. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really enjoyed our talk with you and we really uh, hope that your book continues to bless people. I'll, I'll tell you this, we've had a lot of authors on the show and I'm not just saying this, but um, Christine has called me maybe three or four times about a book that she says, this is a great book. You've got to get it. And yours was among them. So um, and a couple of times she said, ah, the book was okay. <laughs> I won't tell you which books that was, but she really uh, loved your book. I just started reading it. So I can't, I, to be honest with you, I can't, um, I, I'm sure I'm going to, we think alike, so I'm sure, sure I'm going to share her enthusiasm for it, but just, uh, scanning oh, the table you. of contents, I'm very excited about it. So. Okay, John, I can already tell you, you're going to like, you're going to like the discussion on intelligent design. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah. That's one of the things I'd like to do a whole show on intelligent design. And maybe we could have you back on a panel for that, Aaron, because I really think, oh, cool. you know, I've said this to Christine before. If young earth creation um, is if we're at the Christian wedding reception and young earth creation is the clown car with the big red nose and the long flappy feet. Intelligent design gets out of the limousine in the three-piece suit, and they're they're really decked out nice, and they're articulate. Yeah. And I think it's a greater even injustice uh, because mm. it's more people are more susceptible to hitching a ride onto the ID bandwagon because they yeah. use scientific terms and they're not bat crap crazy like these guys who think T Rex was on the ark. So. I, I do think that that is a refuge for Christians who want to think they're scientific and 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 it's even more dangerous to Christian pride than yeah. you know, something that is really f almost as ridiculous as believing in a flat earth, you know, yeah. uh, even though there's a number. I mean, look at the influence, though, Ken Ham has. Look at the influence that AIG has. I mean, I mean you know, there's um, one of the last days at my church, um, a, an elderly man came up to me and a big family in the church. And he came up to me and he put his hand on my arm and he said, Pastor, have you been to the Ark Encounter yet? 
And, you know, I try not to openly cringe, but I was cringing. I, I said, yeah, I have not been there. And he's, he started to nearly cry. And he said, it was such a spiritual experience for me to go there and to see how enormous it was. And, 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 you know, I, I, there's certain battles you don't fight, you know, and I just let him own that joy. Uh, and I thought to myself, you don't listen to my show at all. <laughs> but, um, it was, it was really, uh, troubling to see the hold that that has on certain mm. people. Um, and, um, and it's not going to affect him, but his, his no. grandkids are going to walk away from the faith because of it, you know, because just, yeah. they're, they're, they're just, it's just too far. It's a bridge too far. It's just Christian. It makes Christianity not even plausible, let alone probable, you know, um, yeah. you thought you said when you were 16, you thought it was the most probable argument, but it doesn't, Christianity is not even plausible as you brought up with your best man if you're going to make an yeah. argument like that that the, the rocks are lying that you know to believe young earth creation isn't just to reject darwin or evolution it's uh, biology it's to reject geology and paleontology and you know climatology yeah. and just all of them just embryology plate tectonics you have to reject all of that stuff uh, and dna the, the mm. dna evidence you brought up to to and but but beyond that you have to accept that we live in a conspiracy theory that all the major scientists and all the major scientific fields are under the spell of the prince of the power of the air and you're basically yeah. you're basically satanic sock puppets <laughs> and and there are people who believe this i've met them they believe that you know the, this distrust of science it's the people who won't wear the masks christine because it's a hoax and yeah they want in in they you know they want to get rid of the bill of rights next or something and it just it really is i know it's not the the common experience of believers around the globe you know like uh nt wright would say he doesn't experience this in the uk and some of our friends up north in canada would say it's <laughs> rare but it is shocking that it's so prevalent here uh, in our country. It just is, is, is shocking. And But anyway, I'm, I'm going on too long. Uh, Christine, you want to say some last words to Aaron? Aaron? No, just thank you so much for joining us today, Aaron. We're very pleased to have you on your show. And I really hope um, lots of people will get this book because it's one of the best treatments of the subject that I've read. And I've, I've read like about a hundred books on this topic. So it's a really good one. Thank and you. I, I thank you for, for your work on it. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I try to leave no stone unturned. I, I'd read, I'd read a lot of books that, you know, treat the scientific evidence, you know, in real depth. Uh, and I've read some books that treat like the philosophical, psych psychological, theological side really well, but I wanted to make a book that tried to, you know, tie both those things together. I mean, I was trying to put together, you know, something that's pretty much half the first half of the book is, you know, kind of the theology, some of the psychology and the philosophy. And the second half is just raw, unadulterated evidence. Um, and I think very persuasive evidence. I tried to put the best case forward. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, if anybody even thinks, you know, that anybody's even stimulated to think about it, that my job's done. And I've seen that in some of the, the not nasty comments on my Amazon book page. Some people have said, you know, I, I didn't accept evolution. I read this and I'm not really sure now. And I think that's great. You know, 
<laughs> Press into it, dig into it. All right, well, let's start with uh, an icebreaker then. So what's the most amazing natural phenomenon you've ever seen? Yeah, I think one of them probably has to be uh, witnessing the salamander migration, you know, in early spring. It's like usually the first warm rainy night over, uh, you know, 40 degrees. And it's just so cool to see, you know, all these abystema salamander species, you know, spotted salamanders, tiger salamanders, just all kind of migrating in mass to, you know, these ponds to mate and it's just cool knowing that knowing that you know there's like a road 100 200 yards away and you know there's this whole world out there these you know salamanders mating and you know doing these things and just largely unaware of it uh you know this has been something that's going on probably for thousands of years in that region and you know in other areas you know pre-glaciation of the you know midwest you know for millions of years they've been doing these rituals and it's cool to kind of, you know, peek a little bit and see these rituals that have been going on for so long that we're usually unaware of, but it's going on in our backyard. <laughs> that's a great well, I mean, I was completely unaware of that myself. So that's yeah. very interesting. What areas does this occur? Like what parts of the world? It's at least the, the Midwest here. So I lived in Michigan, Northeast Michigan, and, you know, here in Northeast Ohio, you know, there's an annual salamander uh, with most of the species you know, doing that in the spring. Um, but it's so cool. I mean, you know, you're out there and you hear, you know, wood frogs, it's just deafening and chorus frogs. And these salamanders kind of migrating overland to go to the pond. And then the rest of the year, there's kind of hiding under logs. So it's a really cool event. And yeah, almost nobody's ever out there. Nobody knows what's going on. But Aaron, nature's kind of doing its thing for thousands of years. <laughs> Aaron, I, you, you look like a young man. And I hope uh, yeah. if that's not the case, I'm not insulting you. But uh, are, are you married <laughs> with children? Yeah, I'm actually, I, I look young. I guess that's good. But I'm 32 and I'm married. I've been married for almost 10 years. And I have a, a two-year-old daughter and I have a son that's going to be born in February. Okay. So I'm glad your only escape from not saying that they're the most incredible phenomenon you'd ever seen is that they, you, you would <laughs> say that they're a supernatural phenomenon, not a natural. Okay. Yeah. 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 There's something else. Yeah. They're out of this world. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, glad to hear it. The salamanders sound, sound amazing. That it, it just sounds, uh, yeah. Out of this worldly. Yeah. Well, and I can testify to the, to the volume of frogs. We have a pond um, behind our house and it is they are very loud we can hear them in the house with the windows closed in certain times of year what's your um, answer Christine? what's your answer oh shoot i mean goodness I, that's hard to pick there's there's a, so many um come come back to me let me okay. give me well, a moment mine, to think about it it's easy for me yours? maybe i just haven't been out of the house enough but I, when i saw the northern lights I, you know, I had yeah. only seen them in pictures and stuff, and you, you always think they're photoshopped, you know, this can't be real. But when you see them, uh, they're, they're so vivid, it's like you're in some kind of fantasy. It's like you're in a movie or something. And um, hmm. so I, I think the Northern Lights would be um, my most breathtaking moment. But That's uh, cool. the Grand Canyon was another know. one. When I first saw the Grand Canyon, you know, I tell people, you know, I, we were in the kind of not the tram but the like the the little bus that takes you from the parking to to the actual trailhead and 
you know, uh, when we, I wasn't expecting to see it until we got off the bus, but I looked to my left and I saw it and my, just, my jaw dropped. <laughs> just <laughs> it, the pictures don't prepare you just for actually seeing it live. And, um, so I, I guess those two. Now, if I saw the Northern lights over the Grand Canyon, that would be <laughs> the answer, but I never have. So, yeah. That might be a bit South. Yeah. yeah. Um, I might say something like the Garden of the Gods in Colorado. That That's pretty amazing and magnificent in the way those boulders just kind of seem like they're sitting and about to topple over. Um, such a beautiful landscape and area, too. So. Hmm. Nice. Um, that's as nice as the interview gets, Aaron. Now we're going to be. <laughs> yeah. Put yeah. me in the hot seat. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs>